0: Well, dude, Clay Trouse, thanks for uh, bringing me into your house, and Brian for uh, for setting yeah, up. And yeah, and you, you just wrote a book. Yeah, but I want to go. Let go this, by Let the way. The so kind of romantic uh, interlude there. go go back further because, dude, your life story as you read it, you've you've made multiple sort of career shifts. That's accurate. Yes, but born in Nashville. Yeah, high school, and then you go to D.C. I think it was George Washington. That's right. Yeah, and you go to. I'm assuming it was a political science. Uh no, history.
1: History. History major at GW. Uh, loved being in DC. Born and raised Nashville. Public school kid, K through twelve. Got a scholarship to go to GW. Uh, graduated three years. Uh, worked on a novel for a year and then went to uh, law school at Vanderbilt. So I came back home uh, and at twenty five years old, graduated pass of R and uh, was off into whatever you want to call the real world. What type of law? Uh, I was a litigator. So uh, basically. I repped, as a lot of young lawyers do who go into firms, uh, I repped the big companies um, in any sort of litigation related uh, endeavor issue that they might have. What was unique about my job was I went to work in the Caribbean. So I was at the biggest law firm in the Caribbean. We had 13 attorneys. So I am still, to this day, a licensed United States Virgin Islands attorney. Um, and then I took the bar in Tennessee the next year, so I'm licensed in Tennessee as well. But that's not a very common overlap. There aren't that many United States Virgin Islands attorneys, and there are even fewer people who would graduate from law school and that's the first bar that that you would take.
0: They're based out of there for tax purposes, or
1: so it's it fast. I mean, there's a lot of different reasons. So the USVI people don't realize the territory uh, like <laughs> in some ways Puerto Rico is, and for people who don't even know the geography of it. We're about thirty-minute flight to the east from Puerto Rico. So if you look on the map, we are the U.S. Virgin Islands, British Virgin Islands, as far east basically as you can go of the continental North and South of America. Yeah. So from there, it's Europe, right? So you're way kind of out there, floating in the ocean. Um, and historically, there's only hundred thousand people there. So hundred thousand Virgin Islanders uh, and there are a lot of businesses that have interests there. A lot of them have BVI, but also USBI. And there are a variety of different uh, entities that would have businesses there, uh, but some of it would be tax-related. Um, some of it would be uh, business-related, uh, where you decide you want to have your locus there. For instance, even now, Puerto Rico is a hot place for people to go who are uh, wanting to try to have low tax rates if you bring business to those islands. So we repped, but we repped every big copy So American Airlines flies into the U.S. Virgin Islands. We repped American Airlines. Uh, banks, uh, big instances there. Uh, so there are a, a lot of plaintiffs, they call it the plaintiff's paradise because uh, you want to be, if you can, you want to sue in the U.S. Virgin Islands. So we were the defense attorneys. The plaintiff's lawyers would make a ton of money because the average juror in the U.S.B.I. has to need great education. And most people know each other. So, if, uh, if you have an opportunity to sue Home Depot or American Airlines or uh, Kmart, uh, which they still had uh, Kmart's there, you want to sue there. Uh, and so, we, to a large extent, would be the big firm. At this time, I'm 25 years old. Yeah. Uh, the big firm lawyer for the big American corporation. So, that's what I did when I was, uh, when I was 25 years old.
0: Was that the original this when you got that job? Hey, we're going to send you to the Virgin Islands? You was know, The firm recruited
1: So uh, the managing partner was a Vanderbilt law grad. He's uh, still a good friend of mine now. I didn't know him at the time. And uh, I was getting married. Uh, you met my wife a little bit earlier in the house here, but she uh, and I got married in August of 2004. And uh, then within 10 days, I started practice in the U.S. Virgin Islands. So we didn't even go on honeymoon. We just moved to the U.S. Virgin Islands, which is where a lot of people go on honeymoon. Uh, but then I went into work by August of 2004. And really, it was, I wasn't that excited about being a lawyer, I would say, in general. And we didn't have any kids yet. But we were just getting married. And we thought to ourselves, why not have a fun experience <laughs> and go to a cool uh, place and see what it's like? Island fever. Is that, is I, that I anything? It, yeah, I, island fever is a real thing. I didn't have it as much like I did boat fever. <laughs> so if you tell me that I go on a cruise ship, I don't like being forced to stay on a cruise ship. I don't like being able to get off. I'm fine if we go to an island. Uh, the island, if I remember correctly, is 14 miles long, and it would take you 45 minutes to drive from one end to the other because the river, not like highways, right? So you can't drive that fast. And there are so many different things that you can do, including get on a boat and go to a different island, um, that I didn't ever really feel like that island fever. Lots of people do, but... Um, what, what I would miss at that time, and I don't know how much it's different now, but we would go to Puerto Rico, which was basically like the New York City of the Caribbean, and it would be for things like, hey, let's go to a stadium seating um, uh, movie theater. Let's go to a shopping mall, you know? Uh, let's go to uh, an Outback Steakhouse, you know, like things that are you're used to in the continental United States. Uh, they don't really necessarily exist in the USBI in the same way. I mean, again, it may have changed somewhat since then. Uh, but that was the things that I missed was maybe the opportunity to go and kind of experience what most of suburban life in the United States is like. And, and I would just say this, for people who haven't lived in a place like that, there isn't a huge middle class. Like I was the middle class, right? As a young attorney, they're super rich people. Uh, who have second, third homes on those islands. Maybe they live down there a decent amount, but they're exquisite, incredible places. And then there's very uh, uh, low-level houses, right? Like anybody who's been to the Caribbean. That's not very common in the United States, which is mostly driven by a middle-class persona. Um, The middle class doesn't exist there. Um, And so I would say that's the challenge, because you have super-I-N that caters to the super-rich, and then you have super low end that caters to the super low end. And there's not as much of the middle-end uh, 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 universe that maybe you would be used
0: to. Yeah, abject uh, poverty. Yeah. Um, especially gone to, having gone to third-world countries. It, it's on a different level. I think it's closer to third-world than it world is. Is the way that I would describe it. So, you know, the thing I love, again, reading the story, is uh, one of the things you missed was direct TV. Yeah. For, you know, so, Tennessee Titans. Yeah. I'm, I'm assuming you, you've been a sports fan.
1: My whole life. Dying My whole life. Die And so when we moved down there, uh, and this is still an issue, right? I think they just kind of got some sort of resolution. But if Elon came in and like Starlink or whatever, I I think they allowed it. The the catch was, so for diehard NFL fans, the NFL Sunday ticket is how you watch out market games. So if you're in New York City, for instance, you're going to get the Jets and you're going to get the Giants. Uh, If you're in Houston, you're going to get the Texans every week, right? Probably the Cowboys a lot too. Um, but so the Titans are never going to be on uh, the main national broadcast and you know, we got a lot of New York City because we had New York City at Millie at stage even there and so usually if you're out market you would go to a sports bar and they would have every game um, it's an interesting concept there because of as I mentioned earlier uh, the Virgin Islands being so far east they are actually covered by DirecTV Latin America um, and Direct Latin America didn't service the US Virgin
0: Islands. So you're swimming in soccer.
1: So you had no ability to go to a sport far or even to sign up to get Direct TV at your house. So you couldn't watch whatever NFL game you wanted to watch. So there was a guy and it, it, there's really kind of fascinating territorial law that still applies to the US Virgin Islands, Guam, some of these outlying islands that most people never visit, uh for non-states, a little bit in the uh in the uh uh, Puerto Rico universe. This guy was on hunger strike because he didn't have the right to vote for president. Um, and I thought, you know, this is kind of, I'm going to do a satirical version of that. I'll go on a pudding strike and only eat pudding, like hunt snack packs and do reviews of them until uh, the U.S. Virgin Islands gets covered by the uh, DirecTV so I can watch whatever football I want. That's why I started writing online uh, back in, uh, back at 04 now, nearly 20 years ago.
0: And then that saved We were CDS
1: sports. Initially I started writing online with buddies. We started our own site. Um, and then eventually I started writing for CDS sports.
0: So is this when you started considering career shift? I mean, were you not finding this? Was, yeah, so I was
1: practicing law first time uh, full time, and I know now this is a more commonplace discussion, but I was twenty five years old and I what I would say it's done everything right. I went to college, got a degree, went to law school, got a law degree, passed. And I was 25 years old, and I was standing in, I remember standing in my law office in thinking, is this really the next 40 years of my life? Um, is this what I'm going to do forever? And I had what I would say is sort of a quarter-life crisis. Um, and it wasn't that that was a bad job. Um, I mean, there's still way worse jobs than practicing law. But every lawyer I've ever met has a, if I wasn't practicing law, what would I rather do job? Just about. Some people truly want it. That's a tiny minority, I would say. Other people, it's just a job. And it's a job that pays decently. Um, but uh, for me, I, I was looking for, when I started writing online, uh, you know, an hour escape a day where I could feel like, hey, um, this is something that I'm passionate about, that I enjoy. And it took me a while to realize that I might be able to make a living at it, you know, four or five years because I wasn't making money. But I had' worked on my craft. I kept producing content and I was willing to keep working and I would say for a lot of people they want the immediate validation yeah. um it took me you know I mean I when I was turning thirty I was making forty thousand dollars a year uh so wait, first of all with the wife uh, would show she, uh, yeah she, she was a, um she to her credit uh she was uh she was very supportive. Well, leave it. Um, and so, uh, and, you know, I wrote a book, Dixie Delight. We started to have a little bit of success. Um, and, uh, she was working full time and the trajectory of my career was positive. Um, but the, look, the, there were definitely times where I thought, especially when I had the first two kids, um, as anybody out there who has kids knows where I thought to myself, man, uh, this is overwhelming, uh, It's one thing to take risks when you don't have kids. It's another thing entirely to take risks when you have a family um, that's relying on you. And I've written and talked about this before, but I remember um, I got the, I was working at a site called Fan House and they shut down. They sold, basically sold all their traffic to sportingnews.com. And I don't know how many people were working at Fan House at the time, let's say 60 or 70. They basically let us all go. Um, Checks, only a handful to continue to work there. And uh, I remember going here in Nashville, my hometown, and going to a AAA baseball game uh, around that time and feeling like I was the equivalent of a AAA player, where it's, you you well imagine anybody who's a baseball fan, you worked as hard as you could, and you got so close to being a major league baseball player. I mean, AAA baseball player, you're an incredible player, right? Uh, and you're sitting there and you're looking, and you can see, hey, somebody could get injured tonight, hit by a pitch, and suddenly I could get promoted and I get my chance to be a, be a leaguer. I felt like that's where I was in my career. Um, and it was about that time that I started Outkick uh, in 2011. And over the last 12 years, uh, things have just got progressively better and better. But, you know, sitting there at 32 years old, um, you know, I like, like a lot of uh, people who, Uh, have an aspiration to kind of ascend to a high level of success. You get close. And it's actually not failing, I don't think, that's that's tough. I think it's feeling like you were so close and you just need a little bit of an opportunity to get to that proverbial next level. And that's where I was. Um, And that's when I started Outkick. Uh, and, And, you know, I've worked really hard 12 years later to be sitting here and have everything kind of coming together.
0: I'm ju- I'd say it asked when everyone got laid off before you started out kick. I and mean, did you and your wife sit down and have conversations? Hey, do we continue the, the course? Yeah, and-
1: because it was super crazy. It was like not only getting laid off. Um, so I was just about to get, I was a national columnist for Fan House. I was writing all the time. I was traveling all over the country and I was severely underpaid. I think I was making like $40,000 a year for that job. But they said, hey, I'm going to take care of you. Uh, we're about to get you a long-term extension, like it's sitting on my desk to get you taken care of, so you're making a decent salary. Um, and so it wasn't just losing that oper- that that job. It was legitimately thinking, oh, I'm going to be taken care of, my family's going to be taken care of, I've got the perfect job. And then, boom, getting that yanked right out from underneath me. At the time, I was fortunate, because I also had been cognizant of the risks that are out there. And, so I started doing daily local sports star radio. So when the chair got completely pulled out from underneath me on right, I at least, even though I was making at the time forty thousand dollars, I think at each job. So I had built myself up to where I was making eighty thousand dollars a year, and I was feeling good about myself. And then suddenly fifty percent of my income was gone, and I just had the uh, the local sports star radio show. But that at least was providing me the ability to pay my mortgage, to take care of my family.
0: But my wife is still working full time. My perspective is my perspective, but you you're not losing yourself in the military. I, I fear going to war less than I, I fear losing myself. Yeah, that's I mean for for any parent or any any man of the house that's responsible. Yeah, for, I mean, the livelihood of, of the family. That is a scary prospect. So with with Outkick, yeah, you're the founder. Yeah. You you start this on your own. I mean, initially, did you were were you doing everything? I did it every
1: gonna... single thing. I sold every ad. I wrote every article. So you're uh, a salesman. You're the... wearing every hat. Um, so and my initial goal was, I was thinking to myself, if I could ever build this to where I could make a hundred thousand dollars a year from Outkick, I would be ecstatic. Yes. Right. Uh, because my idea was just to try to try to give me security for my family, but also to allow me to have control. Um, and I had worked at that point at CBS at Deadspin in mm-hmm. Fan House, so I felt like I knew the online sports writing universe, um, and I was super frustrated because I didn't want to give anybody else control over whether I succeeded or failed. And so uh, I am in that respect kind of a control freak um, because uh, I don't want to be able to uh, be forced to give somebody else The ability to determine my my outcome, and so that was what drove me. I worked all the time, and anybody who starts a small business, you know, uh, it's all encompassing. You'll wake up in the middle of the night, you know, with things burning through your head, like "Hey, I need to make care." Like you just can't go back to sleep. That still happens to me now. I don't have obviously the same control uh, because I sold the company two years ago. But you know, I am in many ways maniacal in the amount of time that I work. And what matters to me uh, hugely is control because I have, uh, in my opinion, I'm not going to fail at something if I can control the outcome.
0: Well, first off, for those that are like, oh, yeah, control—that's that's, that. No, what it is is you were willing to accept that much risk, though. Yeah, on other hand, out very high risk. So where others want the guaranteed paycheck, yeah, which it's not guaranteed, correct, and they're unwilling to accept that risk. They, they they can't understand. And yeah. So since i have retired, I've started multiple yeah. companies, and I still have like I'm, I'm yeah. wondering when when those are going to end. Where I wake up and I'm like, oh my god, I need to make payable. Yeah. But um, I, I think that is just you. You had a, a, a steeper maturation curve than others. Yeah. I realized, hey, there's no way not working for other people. Just yeah. No
1: way. Well, look, the reality is, if fan house doesn't shut down, let's say that that business yeah, works? works. I mean, if somebody had come to me and said, hey. When you sign a 10-year, $200,000 a year deal, I would have signed it at a heartbeat at that time. Because I would have been like, are you kidding me? Like, I'm the most fortunate person who's ever existed in the history of mankind. So it wasn't just that um, that I had uh, recognized that I had this ability. It was that I was forced into it um, because that opportunity to door shut. And so I, I didn't want to fight and claw my way to be an employee somewhere else. And then have somebody else say, oh, sorry, we're changing directions here too. Particularly not when I was working full-time. And I, and I do think the radio helped because I was cognizant of what ad sales were like. Um, and I think I'm pretty good if you put me across the table from a CEO. I think I have a lot of the same traits that those guys yep. do. And so I understood, hey, I've got to deliver for your business if I'm doing radio if I'm doing my outkick show, whatever else it is. Um, and so there's a lot of highs and lows, like any other small business, right? Like, you know, that feeling where you get, uh, suddenly a deal done and you're running around and you're like super excited. I remember getting, you know, a $60,000 advertising buy. And it was like, you know, I just did one a lot. Right. It's I cool. worked so hard. Yeah. And then you also have somebody say, Hey, we're not going to continue. And then you're like, well, that's a big cut in my, um, in my overall income and everything else. So again, I think I have a high risk tolerance and I have a high confidence level, uh, which sometimes can be good. Sometimes it can be bad. Right. I mean, if my wife were answering questions, you could probably point to 20 different things. Yes. Uh, like I'll give you an example at one point as I built the business, one of the things that I saw coming was a lot of advertisers get nervous about content. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, I was like, why do not I have to worry about an advertiser getting upset because we post something that they don't like or they get negative blowback? I would rather own all the businesses that advertise into my content. And so this is probably 10 years ago, I started thinking through the concept. And <laughs> One of the businesses that I decided to start was uh, I was going to sell college colored pants. So if you're a, a college football fan, and let's say you are a uh, Auburn Tito fan. You know, there's an Auburn Tito orange. Uh, every team has a particular color that's associated with you. You can go online and look up. It's Pantone. You know, I think Tennessee <laughs> is like Pantone 151 orange or whatever. I'm a Tennessee fan. And what I had seen as I was going around to all these SEC stadiums, uh Dixieland, the light, is guys age out of what they can wear to college football games in the South. Um, like, when you're young, you might wear, like, <laughs> I think guys don't want to wear jerseys of other players that are way younger than them, mostly, right? Like, if you're a Tim Tebow fan, and you wear a Tebow jersey, and you're 16, and he's 22, it's, it's like, okay, he's older than me, I'm aspiring yes. to be like him. Yep. If you're 42, and you wear a 20-year-old's jersey, I just think it's a weird look, right? And I think most s fans, a lot of them would agree with me. So anyway, a lot of them where the coaches told them, you know, like the which is like a little bit more dignified version of a t-shirt. I'm a t-shirt and by the way, flip-flops and shorts guy in general. But uh, so we I invested fifty thousand dollars in SEC colored pants with the idea that I was going to sell them all through uh the West. I knew nothing about pants. Uh, I know a lot about pants now. For instance, men's pants. A lot of people are like, I, you probably know roughly what your t shirt size is. Yes. And if you went online and you bought a t shirt, you'd be like, I'm a large guy, I'm an extra large, I'm a medium. Like, you know, roughly. And the fit's not going to be totally different. Pants, length, and weights. And oftentimes, companies lie about both. For instance, I'm at 34 waist. What that actually means is I'm 36 waist, but they want me to feel like I'm less fat. So, they tell me I'm a 34. If you're a 38 or you're a 40, you're probably a couple of sizes bigger. Guys don't buy pants because you don't know what they're going to fit. So, sudden and why would you buy pants from Clay Trappist? Like, he's not in the pants business, right? So, I invested $50,000 in pants and lost $50,000, which at the time was a lot of money. It's not an insubstantial amount of money now. But, you know, a lot of businesses that are multi-million dollar businesses can risk $50,000. Yes. I didn't have a lot of money to risk at that time. So I failed. Um, and that, for instance, was like my ideal. right? Um, it is important to own, I think, businesses that advertise into your content. If you want to protect your content yes. from advertising yes. issues, the ideals, right? The execution went wrong. You spread too thin. You and can't be all things. To- and also, by the way, like I'm basically color blind and I'm sitting here looking at khaki colored pants that are dyed, trying to distinguish between te- Texas orange, Tennessee orange, Auburn orange, because that out, right? Like, for if you're a fan of a team, yeah. you want to make sure yeah. that it's the right color or you don't want to look like you're a fan of others. So I'm sitting there trying to distinguish between these. I got prototypes laid out all over my house um, and the tables in the house. And so, sometimes, you know, that means that you bite off more than you can chew. Things don't go the way that you would anticipate. But ideally, what you're paying for is the lesson. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, I would like to think that as I have aged, I have failed. But I have gotten smarter about the ways that I fail. And I haven't been afraid to take chances. um, Because you don't really know. We're working right now, for instance, on coffee. Um, that we're going to launch um, uh, through my radio show. And we're building a website. We're looking at the copy and what the, you know, K-Cups look like and what all these different things look like. And I was talking to my, to my business partner today. And I said, yeah, this is all great. You know, we spent a ton time high looking at all these details, analyzing what, until we flip lies, you don't know what, like, for your business, until you start the mission, you can prepare for the mission as much as you want. One what, what of the great quotes of all time, Mike Tyson, everybody's got to play until they get punched in the mouth, right? And I'm like, we're going to get punched in the mouth. When you flip something live, you find out way more about your market in 24 hours than you knew in the 24 months that you may have spent. And You have to be able to look at that data, analyze, adjust, and live.
0: Yeah. That's amazing. You said... You, know, you feel you have most of the qualities of a CEO. Would you ever take like a Fox Sports CEO role? Well, no. You would never <laughs> can Because uh, Well, first of all, Eric Shanks is amazing. You, that, yeah, though. I'm not. But he's the be. Well, I think
1: my skill set is I'm a content
0: guy. Mm-hmm.
1: So what's a little bit unique is I, I would say, for instance, in the world of sports media, there's lots of guys who have built businesses. For instance, Bleacher like their business side guys, business side guys, and they go out and they hire content guys. I think my skill set is I'm able to talk to the business guys and be like, yeah, you know, like we got to make money on this. We got to figure out how to monetize this. We have got to figure out what the business aspect of this deal is. But I can also still be really good at content, so I can go to the content guys and say, hey man, because a lot of writers, for instance, have no idea how they get paid. I would say most people in general are more comfortable being employees than they are employers. One hundred percent, one hundred percent. So, like the ninety-nine versus the other one. That's right. Yeah. Um, And so, uh, I, I can talk to both sides and say, you know, my perspective, and this would be my advice to anybody who's watching or listening to us right now: figure out how you get paid. Right. Whatever you are choosing to do. If you don't care how you get paid, you're never going to be great at what you're doing. That's fine. Like lots of people, I'd be like, my grandfather uh, used to say, you know, I work to have a good time, right? Like, okay. Like I get, you're going to Yeah. yeah. It, like I want to be there for my family. Uh, I want to make sure that, that, you know, um, that we're able to have good time outside of work. I'm not trying to, you know, foul the business or something like that. And I just want to know that I've got money to be able to pay my mortgage. Um, But if you are really interested in truly having success, you need to figure out how you get paid. And like I say this all the time to people on the content side, if you're doing radio, you know why? How do the how does the radio show make money? What is the method by which you can make more money for your radio show? If you're writing on the internet, how does the website? How does your, like, understanding the business of what you do, if your goal is to be successful, I think is really important. And so um, I wouldn't want to just be on the business side because uh, I think it's like trying to be a coach. Um, and I've been coaches for my kids a little league. Like, I get driven insane by not being able to be involved myself. Um, so I feel like I'm kind of in the nitty gritty. Now, uh, could you be a player manager? I don't
0: I think everything you just described basically set you up for the role.
1: I think- I mean, there are, there are three guys, if you think about it, in sports media who have built successful businesses from the content side, right? Uh, Bill Simmons, mm-hmm. uh, who obviously has had tremendous success uh, with the Rear, uh, Portnoy with Barstool, and I would say me with Outkit. And all three of us, and again, there's lots of other people who've built very successful businesses, but they aren't directly content guys. So content guys who build business um, is somewhat rare. Um, and so I would never just want sort to of be you on the
0: business side. no, I love that that perspective um wh- one one question before we get into to the last segment here if for the viewers, the ones who are potentially you know let's say struggling with elite to to break off and do it on yeah, what does the average day of a high performer in this industry look like? Ugh. I mean,
1: my wife would probably answer that better, but I'll tell you for instance, what I've done today. All right, so um, this is, we're talking, uh, what is today? September 14th? September 14th, 2023. Because ideally, people might watch this in four years and be like, this is a representative day for me. Um, So, one, I've got three days. So, let me just start there. Uh, I've got a 15 year old, I've got a 12 year old, I've got an eight year old. Uh, So, most days for me are going to start with me taking, I feel fortunate, I walk my third grader to school. So, I'll start off the day walking him to school. Then I come back and I basically dive straight into prep for my shows. Um, so I will read any and everything. I'm on live from uh, 11 to 2 Central. I took over Buck Sexton and I do a show. We took over for yes. Russell Limbaugh uh, in his time slot. So today, uh, get back from taking my son to school, read for you know the the early part of the day. Then I was on Fox Business. To discuss three different topics so i have a television studio upstairs put on a uh, a jacket and a uh, button down uh leave my shorts on uh sit down do uh like 10 or 15 minutes for that then today i was doing outkick the show which i also do every day for 30 minutes right after uh playing but but today i did it earlier Uh, We taped it at 10 a.m. because I had uh, Martha McCollum on Fox News reacting to the Hunter biden uh, indictments at 2.10 Central. Uh, Finished that at 2.30 Central. I had a call with uh, the business side of the Clay and Buck show uh, for updates on how 2023 is looking um, in that larger context. Um, and that call went on for a while. Uh, then I had a call uh, related to OutKick content management. Then I walked up to go uh, to go grab my uh, eight-year-old eight, eight uh, from third grade, brought him back, sat down with you. So in the context of this day, uh, I will do Fox Business. I will do Fox News. I will do three hours of live radio. I will do 30 minutes of live OutKick show. Um, and I'll do probably close to an hour with you. I think right now I also have Sean Hannity scheduled in the evening. In between all, I'll try to be a dad, um, and I'll also have to read everything because I have to be prepared to go on and talk. You know, it's it's one thing when I did sports full time, and you would go on like tonight. Uh, the uh, five teams play against the Eagles. Mm-hmm. Well, I have an opinion already of Kirk Cousins. I have an opinion already of Jalen Hurts. It's unlikely that until the game is played, which I'll probably watch some tonight, until that game is played, it's unlikely that there'll be some substantial shift in my analysis of that. But when you're live on the radio or live on television, that Hunter Biden indictment team down while we were live on the radio, nobody was prepared for that, right? It's legitimately breaking news. So I was scheduled to go on Martha McCollum's show. I don't even remember what the topic was going to be. But in real time, boom, it shifts. Analyze what this indictment underbite. Well, you have to have been reading all day and kept up on every aspect of the Biden story to be able to go on and talk about it in an intelligent fashion. So some people say, like, how much do you prep for your shows? The answer is all day long. You can never be like, oh, I'm only going at like I'm I'm not gonna pay attention to any news today because you get exposed. I mean, whatever you what I, what I found is whatever I say publicly has to be. Remember the Hemingway like talking about the iceberg mm-hmm. when he said you know basically I'm I'm paraphrasing here, but uh, the writings that oh, you only see the iceberg above the wire. yeah, but there's a huge foundation that supports the uh, the iceberg above the wire that you never see. That foundation always has to be there, because otherwise, whatever you're trying to put out there has no basis and crumbles over. And I always say, like, you can disagree with my opinions, but my facts are going to be right. How do you get your facts right by studying
0: all it? So you read all it, read, read, read. Is anyone curating content for you and saying you yeah, some of the? Not really, because no. I don't. And again, this goes to control.
1: My concern is I've never found, if I could have someone who was like, I've been looking for a long time, I would love to have a 25-year-old version of me, a researcher, justice, who could distill everything that's going on and be like, Clay, you don't even need to read anything. Here's one hour of the things that you need to read today. But what I always am afraid of, and what I found is anytime I try to dial out, that's when I miss that article that would have, made me see something in a different way or that information that would connect, that would tie everything together. Um, and this is also the probably legal training in me, but the number of people who opine on things without having read the foundational document, for instance, if you're going to have an opinion on the Hunter Biden uh, indictment, you need to read the Hunter Biden indictment. Right? You don't need to read the coverage of the Hunter Biden indictment. You need to read the, do- the original document. Um, and so I try to go back when I did sports, I used to like to watch or read transcripts of press conferences because I would find that oftentimes the stories that people wrote were actually the least interesting thing that people said. press mm-hmm. So anyway, um, I am super controlling in the fact that I want to make sure that I am seeing and reading everything.
0: What's interesting about you. And I, this is, I want to sort of make this the last say you've done a, masterful job of intertwining the politics with sports. And let's be honest, sports has always been intertwined with politics. Yeah. I just don't think it's been covered like it has. Yeah. To date. I mean, you look at the 1936 uh, Olympics, yeah. Olympics, the 1972 Olympics back in Germany. Yeah. Uh with the Palestine uh, and uh, you know, Israel uh hostage hostages. When did that leap start to take place? Was there a certain event where you started to intertwine those? Or did you I I mean you you Going to George Washington, you also worked for some senators, you interned. Yeah. Was that always a passion of yours as well? How did those two- I mean, a big history.
1: (laughs) So when I'm not focused on the day-to-day, the what, so like, people say, what is the drawback of what you do for a living? Maybe that's what I'm going to ask. Um, I think a drawback is sometimes it's hard to have full respect because when you're reacting immediately to what's new, it's sometimes hard to realize what's going to matter in 48 hours or 72 hours or a month, you know, or a year from now, right? Um, And so I think um, that's a big challenge for for anybody who reacts on a a day-to-day basis. But I think, um, you know, the biggest challenge that we face in general is – what stories are covered and what stories are not covered. That's the real power. Of media. And I think to the extent that I have a talent in media, it's that if you give me 10 stories, I can point to you the two that are, uh, right? I'm pretty good at topic selection. And your batting average is pretty-, pretty high. Yeah, yeah, because I mean, that's basically what ratings are, right? And or if I don't pick the the topic that people are going to care about the most, my opinion of the topic, that I picked is unique and interesting enough that even if people didn't otherwise care about it. Like I always say, uh, for people who do uh, sports, like you could be the most knowledgeable person about women's college softball in America, but most sports talk shows, your listeners are not going to want to hear you open a show talking about women's college softball. There is an audience for that. But people want to know what's going to happen with the Eagles or uh, the Vikings because 20 million people are going to watch it. Right? Right? So uh, to your point, I think uh, sports and politics really got fully intertwined with Trump. I think it's the it's and then I got like a couple of things that jump out to me. It wasn't Trump was not president yet, but Kaepernick taking a knee. I thought we were together. That was that was when I think things changed
0: in a big way. Edna and and then you're you, San Francisco that that killed us, Killed it. Yeah.
1: yeah. And then you add in Trump win. Uh, and Trump is a sports fan, so then he talks sometimes from the White House about sports, which made that political. But then also COVID, because when they shut down all sports, I was doing sports talk radio at the top. I don't know that I would have gone and ended up doing uh, the show with Buck and taking over for Rush if COVID doesn't Because March, April, May, June of 2020, there's no sports. It doesn't exist anywhere. And I still had three hours a day of radio. So what are you talking about? Like most sports talk radio guys are used to, um, you know, the summer when it's kind of the dead season and you kind of just go out, have some fun talking about whatever topic is, is you know, it's not games really to react to it the same way. And uh, our, our audience exploded. Um, and so they came to me and they said, look, And I was just arguing, hey, we have to open back up. We have to play sports. We have to get high school kids back. Um, That became so... Sports became a representation of a return to wants. And so, uh, to me... And and it may start to dial back a little bit. Because I get the sense that it doesn't feel... You know, George Floyd happened right in the middle of all that. But... As we sit here in 2023, maybe that's going to change next year. Maybe BLM will show back up again because we got an election year. Uh, maybe sports will get more political in nature. But it feels to me, as we sit here in 23, like that craziness from 16 to you know 22. It doesn't feel like the same level of man. I hate you. It feels like me that a lot of people just want to kind of watch a game and not have to worry about
0: anything. I, I I think I agree with you. If I pick up a Coca-Cola I hear about your political journey right. about Coca-Cola, it's, it's, it's been overplayed, but I think we've seen the pendulum swing back to yeah, And I think butt Light is a big part of that. I think
1: realizing that you can have consequences by going too far. In life yes, you did. Is a big part towards the national barometer swinging back towards down the middle of, yeah, to your point on or you know, if I go see uh, Spider-Man, like with my kids. I don't want the movie to start and like Spider Man to come off and pull his mask off and be like, hey guys, I know you came here to see Spider Man, but I really need to tell you about global warming. Like, I, I just want to watch Spider Man, right? Like, um, I feel like most people are that way with sports. They want to be able to experience it. And what I would say is the great thing about sports, and I've been arguing about this for a long time, in an era when it feels like there are so many tribes and so many identities and everybody's colliding and they're trying to slice and dice each other. Sports is one of the last places where your tribe cuts across race, gender, ethnicity. I mean, I'm sure you see it military in your experience. A common uniting force is amazing for making you all recognize your common humanity and how much you have to it's civil as opposed to different. And I grew up, I mean, my era, 80s, 90s, early 2000s, felt like people mostly got along. And we spent a lot of time talking about how much we had it common. White guy, black guy, Asian, Hispanic, didn't really matter. And now it feels like there's so many different destructive elements out there trying to say, hey, your opinion, I would say, like, if you begin your opinion by saying as a right, as a transgender, you know, woman of color, I would like, I don't make your art, right? I don't care about the identity under which your argument is based on. Just make it argument, right? I can believe or disagree with you. Nobody ever says it's in sports. Uh, you know, as a uh, Hispanic woman, I think that Jimmy Garoppolo should be the starting quarterback, right? Like, that's one of the great things about sports. Nobody ever says what their identity is to then argue who the quarterback should be. And if they didn't, would be like, why? why should I care what your background is? The dude can either do the job or he can. Outcomes or not. He either delivers it. Sports is the ultimate meritocracy. Best of the best woman used to be, uh, or a woman, but uh, best of the best woman should
0: win. It, for sports, though, for, for that steel worker coming home on Monday, the one thing he's looking forward to on Monday night is just sitting in his own chest yes. and watching that. That's 100% right. It's meant to be a relief. It's meant to cheer for your side. Yeah. And if you lose, you congratulate all the players on the field. Sports is a toy chest of life for adults. Men
1: in particular, but I know there's tons of women as well that, that, that feel the same way. But it's an escape. You know, you might have a, uh, a bad relationship going on. You might have a kid who's sick. Uh, you might yourself not feel very well. Uh, but you put in the grind at your job. You come home, you pop a beer open, and you sit back. And for three hours, you just want to escape. It is escapism. That's the job. And so when you tell me, hey, uh, I want to make this serious, I think you undercut, and the data reflects that. I love that. I, I think you undercut the escapism, right? Um, when you tell people, hey, let's talk about all the awful things that are going on in the world. Um, now, there are some examples where it matters. Like we just had the 9-11 anniversary. Yes. President showing up, throwing a strike uh, in New York, uh, VREATI Stadium. Um, I think those kind of things matter in a big way. And that's what I talked about a lot with, with COVID. Sports coming back admit that normalcy could return. And as long as sports weren't happening, it was hard to argue that normalcy was going to uh was going to return. Uh, and so I just think it's an interesting prism and window into American culture. And I want it may be the case that in five or six years things go back to normal. And I just go back to thinking who I think is gonna win the Super Bowl and I don't have to talk about, you know, like whether uh, you know, uh,
0: a dude who decides to identify as a woman can become a win and champion. I would love that. I, I look at the article on The title of the article right there yeah. is uh sports, the return to uh, normality. Yeah. Um twenty twenty four. Are you gonna get to sleep? I know this year is a lot of for the first time in my life. Yeah. I'd rather go to sleep on January first Yeah, just wake me up uh post election, but you I mean, you must be your family must be anti that you
1: Yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be crazy. Um and it seems like we'll see. Um, as we're sitting in mid September, it doesn't seem like maybe the primary season's going to be as wild. It may just be that we end up with Trump versus Biden again. But um uh, twenty twenty four is gonna be bonkers. Um and I was just talking with my co host yeah. Bot Sexton. It feels like we're in the middle of a television show where anything could happen in terms of the direction that Hunter Biden just got indicted today. When you're talking about a leading contender, Donald Trump, who's 77, and Joe Biden is 81, or about to turn 81 in November, there's a crazy stat. Half the people born on Joe Biden's birthday in uh, November of 1941, I think, are dead. Half of them. So he has already outlived half of the people that were born on his day of, of birth. We've never seen anything like this. So if tomorrow Joe Biden, and I hope it doesn't happen, or Donald Trump, has a medical condition, everything changes overnight. I mean, one of those guys could have heart attack. One of them could have a stroke. Like, it would not be outside the bounds of expectation at all that that could happen in the next year. Uh, if we have been having this conversation in September of 2019, We would have been talking about, hey, well, how do you think Trump's going to do re-election? COVID wouldn't have even been in our purview. The idea that in March of an election year, suddenly we would have this new virus and everybody would be panicked. It would have been six months from from now. So, like, what could happen in March of 24? Um, So, it's just hard to predict. We know that there will be chaos just based on what's already happening. You talk about stress and sleep. We just think about this: you're a seal. Uh, you have an ability to deal with stress on an elite level. Seal Team Six, even for seal, you have ability. ability. Can you imagine Trump at 77 facing four different serious felony yeah. charges, running for president simultaneously. The amount of energy and stress that he has to be able to hold on his shoulders is almost without parallel in the history of 77-year-olds in all of human history, right? I mean, just think about it. I'm 44, and I can't imagine having four felony charges running for president of the United States. I think I have good energy, and I certainly work a lot. 33 years from now, to have lived through all that and be dealing with what Trump does. And then for Biden, you know, even when they're limiting his yeah. you know, you yeah. see, I always say, look at what George W. Bush looked like on he started presidency. Look at what Obama looked Same like.
0: Exactly. Excuse-
1: eight years. They look like they aged twenty-eight years. Stress. Yes. A minute that. When you're eighty, what that weight is on you with already one year when you're eight is, you know, the equivalent probably of seven or eight years. 20s or
0: 30s. Regardless of who your candidate, yeah. candidate is, you, you've got to respect those guys for how they deal. Sorry, their stature for how it's they deal. Only, with sleep. And by the way, everybody wrong.
1: You know, the amount that you put your bodies through, the grueling nature of a presidential campaign is, uh, I don't think people think and contemplate how crazy it is.
0: And the ability to block out yeah. the native press. Is, I, just, I wouldn't have that ability. Uh, Clay, where's the best place for people to, uh, to find? Him? At Clay
1: Travis on Twitter. I handle all my Twitter. That's the one place where everything that you see is me. Uh, they go back to the control thing. Both. If somebody's going to create a huge story uh, based on something that I say, I want it to be me as opposed to some 25-year-old who's tweeting on my behalf. Um, so uh, at Clay Travis, we're live 12 to 3 Eastern every day. 490, I believe, affiliate stations nationwide with the Clay and Buck show. Um, and then if you flip on Fox News, there's probably a good chance that uh, that I'll be appearing off and
0: on Yes. course of the day. Last question. What is your prediction for the national football championship in college?
1: So the four playoff teams that I picked, um, let's we'll see if I can get them right in order. Uh Georgia, who was trying to win a third straight. Uh, Florida State, and that looks decent now after they whipped LSU. And by the way, mentioned that we're talking right before the third week. So if someone of these teams loses, is, like, you're an idiot. This is post all these, Alabama. Yeah, and this was also preceded. So my four are still alive. Uh Michigan as the three and USC is the four. So Georgia, Florida State, uh, Michigan, USC were my four. Uh you knew Alabama was I just I I felt like uh, Florida State was a lot better than LSU. Um, And Bryce Young is one of the best quarterbacks that I've ever seen in person. And I think he camouflaged a lot of the challenges that Alabama had last year. You go back and look. They could have lost four games. They could have lost to A&M in Texas, and they did lose to Tennessee and LSU. But you go back and look at that season. He made unbelievable plays to put them in position to even go Ted to. And a lot of times I think when you have, and I think you've seen this at Clemson, Trevor Lawrence, Deshaun Watson, are such incredible college quarterbacks that their talent will elevate everybody else around to an extent where when they're suddenly gone, you look around and you're like, maybe we weren't as strong as we were before. I think that's kind of where Alabama is in my opinion. I think they're going to really miss
0: we don't have time to get into Dion, but Dion's got some real big tests coming up. We'll save that for another conversation. I
1: love Dion; makes it entertaining. Uh, I love. I mean, my favorite thing on a is Saturday. Sit down. I'm also on Big Noon sometimes the Fox pregame show, but I will watch college football from I'm in Central Time though, 11 a.m. kickoff till midnight. I'll watch 12, 13 hours straight. I just love it.
0: Best day of the year. That's full. Yeah, Clay. Thanks so much for joining us, man, and hope to keep you back. Keep probably the good days. work. I appreciate everything you've done. You're a saddle.
1: I feel you guys to be seen. Yeah,
0: we'll see what I can do in the business world. Thanks, appreciate man. it.